Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Patients often ask how long they should continue to take an antidepressant. In fact, these same questions are often discussed amongst doctors as well. These important questions are concepts known as response versus remission. Dr. James Jacobson, a psychiatrist in Melbourne, Florida, is going to help explain and explore these notions with us. Dr. Jacobson, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Before we begin, however, it is critical to emphasize that any treatment plan or any change in a treatment process must be the product of an individual decision made by the doctor and the patient. We are going to be talking about averages, and there may be some guidance in those numbers, but they are no more than guidance. They do not dictate how treatment plans should be formed. Formulated. And the reason is very simple. We are all very different. So if you think you need to change your treatment plan or approach to an antidepressant, you must speak to your doctors. Okay, that being said, depression is quite widespread and by and large treatments are successful. But before we look at the schedule of treatments, the notions of remission and response, Dr. Jacobson, how critical is it that the correct diagnosis be made? I think it's critical to make the correct diagnosis, particularly because even now we know that there are different treatment modalities for different types of depression. For example, dysthymia responds very well to medications and moderate depressions with a specific trigger may do better with psychotherapy. So getting the right diagnosis is critical. In addition, we want to make sure that we're dealing with either a unipolar depression or a bipolar depression simply because if it's a bipolar depression, getting somebody on mood stabilizers is critical for the long-term treatment outcome for that patient. So if someone goes to their internist who could be a perfectly good doctor and say, hey doc, I'm feeling depressed, and the doctor puts them on an antidepressant, that may not be such a smart move. Correct. Usually what ends up happening is the person may get more depressed or they may develop a significant level of agitation over a course of time. However, let's assume that the correct diagnosis is made and an antidepressant has been started. How long should a person be on the medication? What's the sense in psychiatry about this? How do we go about measuring it? Well, I think this has changed over time. I think the information that we're acquiring now about depression is that it's, it's more of a chronic lifetime illness that we have to deal with. And, and what we're really trying to do with depression now is to prevent relapse going forward. Years ago, in my training, it was thought that once somebody got over a depression, you stay on a medication about six months if you're doing all right. You can stop the medication. There's Conceivably, you might do quite well for the rest of your life. I think we're getting a better understanding of it now that if you make the correct diagnosis of major depression, the chances of relapse are pretty significant. Okay, let's introduce the concept of response versus remission. Pretty important clinical concepts. What are they all about, please? Sure. In the past, antidepressants were measured by their response. That's what you're looking for in terms of deciding whether or not an antidepressant is effective as a treatment modality. And so most of our medications will give us a response. Basically means that that's a 50% reduction in your uh, Hamilton depression rating scale or the Madras scale. But what we're finding now is that if they're residual symptoms, even mild symptoms of depression, particularly core symptoms of depression, the chances of relapse are significant even on medication. We're talking on the orders of 1.4 years or one and a half years to relapse on medications with residual symptoms versus if you can get somebody into remission, meaning you get rid of all the symptoms of depression as best you can, the chances of relapse going forward, you can push it out four and a half years. 
there's a significant difference in the difference between response versus remission. Is there a time course? Can someone, by rule of thumb, expect how long it takes before there is a response versus a remission? Do we have data to that line of thinking? Well, most of our data with antidepressants suggests that antidepressants within two to six weeks really start to work in terms of a response. But if you look at most of the data on most antidepressants, if you start to get a response, if you keep the person on the medication longer and adjust the dose, and I think the STAR-D trials have, have suggested this to be true too, you can get an even better response and possibly even a remission. Sometimes you have to augment the antidepressant with other antidepressants or other medications to get a full remission. And how long, again, should one wait before they've decided or the doctors decided that they're not getting past a response, that they're not getting towards a remission? You mentioned six weeks. Is that a, a fair amount of time? In my experience, if I get no nothing after four weeks, I'm going to switch the medication. If I'm getting a response, meaning the person's starting to get better, we're seeing a 50% reduction in their symptoms, I'll generally either adjust the dose or I'll just say, let's wait another month before we start to do something else. One of the things that I remember from years ago was a very good old doctor who had great wisdom, and he used to say that if we can just get an adequate dose for a long enough period of time, and he would talk two or three months, that he would see a lot of good response. He didn't use the words relapse and response and, and remission back then. He just used the word response. So perhaps sometimes we're in too much of a rush. I believe that's true. I, you know, what we're learning about depression now is that, that it's a much more complicated illness than we once thought. We used to believe that it was just, you know, a chemical imbalance. That's the way people talked about depression. Now, now we really understand that it's more than that, that there's really a mind-body connection with depression. We know that there's a substance called brain-derived neurotrophic factor that is implicated in depression or we believe is implicated in depression. And one of the things that I tell my patients who are dealing with a severe depression is that we have to use all modalities we can to get the brain healthy again and to get that brain-derived neurotrophic factor up. There are lots of ways to do it. Psychotherapy works exercise works, medications work, so there's good sleep patterns work, many things that we can do to get the brain back to health. And that doesn't happen right away. It takes time because that brain has actually undergone quite a, an illness. So it's actually as if almost the basic structure of the brain, if I can use that term, is corrected by the antidepressants. Absolutely. One of the things that we can see on an MRI, if you could follow somebody with depression over time, is that their brain will actually shrink when they're in a severe depression and actually will get bigger when it comes back to health. We also know in functional MRIs that parts of the brain that are slowed down during a depression actually come back, speed up and come back uh, into functioning. It raises the question when we use the word response, why haven't we used the word cure? Why do we only use the word response? Is this a disease that is not cured? Yes, I, I think the data is uh, showing now that depression is a chronic illness, that people will be dealing with it over a lifetime. So given that as a fact, and we've all seen it, there seems also to be a general understanding about uh, how long people need to be on antidepressants, depending on if it's their first depression, their second depression, their third depression. Can you comment on that a little bit, please? Sure. In my training and in my earlier years, we used to use the saying, first time depressed, one year on medication, second time depressed, two years on medication, third time depressed for life. The data is pretty clear. If you had one significant major depressive episodes, the chances of you having another one are significant. And after the first episode with my patients, I'll usually ask them to try and stay on the medication for at least a year. Then if they decide that they want to come off of it, I'll explain to them that the chances of relapse are significant. And we talk about how to monitor themselves and be prepared to get back into treatment if the depression returns or to just stay in treatment. Some of my patients elect to kind of visit with me every three to six months just to check in to make sure that they're doing all right. 
So I think it's critical that when we, when we take a patient off medications that we explain to them the likelihood of them having a relapse are significant. I had that same teacher that I referred to a few moments ago used to say something called the 880 rule. I don't know if it's ever been established scientifically. That person is not on antidepressants for eight months, they had an 80% chance of relapse. That basically falls in line with what you're saying. Yes, that's a rule of thumb that I've, I've learned as well. We read a lot about the black box warnings dealing with antidepressants, uh, especially with kids, and yet we know kids do get depressed and they do need medications. Should this frighten people away from using medications and how do we recognize these warnings and yet get around them such that we can achieve both remission and response? How do we approach the black box? In my practice, what I do with teenagers, I don't see young kids. I see teenagers primarily. I'll discuss the issue with the parents and the parents are actually usually by the time they bring their child to a psychiatrist well aware of the fact that antidepressants do carry the black box warning that there's an increased risk of suicidal thinking primarily. What I tell the parents is, is that we we can get the child into psychotherapy for a period of time and see if that helps. If they're not doing better after four or five sessions or we're not seeing any improvement, then maybe we do need to try medications. And when we try medications, we've known for a long time in psychiatry that it can increase suicidal thinking. And so I go over that very clearly with the parents and the child so that they're very much aware. What I usually tell the parents is that they're going to notice that the child's not doing well on antidepressants long before the child knows it. They'll see the child starting to withdraw, starting to isolate, starting to appear more depressed before the child really understands that that's what's going on. So I always bring it into the room. I talk about it very clearly. I suggest that uh, as soon as they notice it, that they stop the medication and give me a call. One of the variables also that all of us face when we treat people with these types of conditions is that they don't stay on their medications long enough. So we may not have an opportunity to even get them to a good response or they quit too soon because they, they begin to suffer side effects. How should one approach that so we do have them on a medication long enough to get a good response? What I, what I share with the patients is, is that in terms of response versus remission, when somebody goes on an antidepressant the first time, what we try and do is select the antidepressant that may have the least side effects for that patient. And what I usually will tell them is that about 30% of the time, they're going to have a full remission. That's clearly what the STAR-D trials show. And if that antidepressant doesn't work, go to another one and keep trying until you find the right antidepressant that works for the patient. Sometimes you'll get onto an antidepressant where there are side effects. And what I usually do is I try and coach them through the side effects and say, let's try and deal with them at least for a year, and then maybe we can try getting you off the medication. In my experience, patients who do have a good response and or remission to the medication and they're having side effects will often elect to go back on that medication if they've come off of it and they've had a relapse. And by extension, one of the frightening things, or shall I also say helpful things, that we've come to realize that a very large number of people do not achieve remission mainly or simply on one medication. We do need to augment. Why do we so frequently need to augment in order to achieve relapse prevention, remission, response, and so on? I think it goes back to my, my earlier comments that uh, depression is a very complicated illness. It's not just simply the limbic system slowing down. It's not just simply the amygdala speeding up. There's lots of cognitive aspects of depression. There's lots of physiologic aspects, uh, somatic aspects of depression. It's just not simply being unhappy or being sad. And when you start to look at it that way, you start to understand that there are different, different parts of the brain that do different things. And sometimes parts speed up. For example, when you have ruminative thinking or excessive guilt, 
there are parts of the brain that slow down when you have trouble making decisions, thinking your way through things, focusing, concentrating, those sorts of things. So sometimes you have to go after those symptoms with different medications because not one medication is going to treat all of those things. It becomes very confusing to people as well. When we use antidepressants, the same drugs, for treatment of depression and anxiety disorders and obsessive compulsive disorders and perhaps even some other disorders, chronic pain. How do we offer an explanation to someone who says, wait a minute, this drug almost looks like it's a universal panacea for everything? Well, what I usually will explain is that the psychopharmacology or the pathophysiology of all of those illnesses has to do with certain neurotransmitters. And in some illnesses, like OCD, for example, obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, clearly you have to pick a serotonergic agent in order to treat that illness. When you start to deal with uh, depression, you're not only dealing with serotonergic issues, but you're also dealing with lots of other neurotransmitter systems. Again, they're all kind of focusing on getting the brain to behave in a more healthy way. You mentioned a few minutes ago, and I think rightly so, that there are massive changes to the brain that actually can change in its shape and its size and its functioning. So the element here in terms of response and remission is giving it time, finding the right dose, finding the right combination, and giving it time. If there's a take-home message, so to speak, it's give it time. We tend to live in a society when people feel it's like going to the dentist, he drills and the pain's gone. It's not quite that simple, is it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When you have somebody with treatment-resistant depression, you really shouldn't give up. You should be very methodical, try and chase down every symptom that you can, employ every modality you can, and certainly don't rule out electroconvulsive therapy simply because ECT is just so effective treating treatment-resistant depression. Does this same issue apply to people who are older, looking at the notion of response versus remission? Because they're on usually so many different medications, it becomes so complicated at times. Do we look for these same patterns in the older folks? Yes, absolutely. You know, one thing that I, I find very interesting is that the concept of pseudodementia versus dementia in older people. Could you explain that? Uh, pseudodementia is a dementia that a symptom essentially of a mood disorder, depression primarily. It's, a, it's an illness or a symptom or a memory loss that's very common. When you work in a general hospital with neurologists, they are always talking about pseudodementias. However, when you go to the literature, it's very interesting that there's very little written about it. And essentially, these people, for all practical purposes, look as though they probably have dementia. But what it really is, is is just an additional symptom of a depression. So when you're treating somebody who complains about memory loss, I always take it very seriously. I always will get neuropsychological testing to make sure that, that what we're dealing with is a pseudodementia versus a real dementia. And if it's a pseudodementia, then I become much more aggressive at trying to make sure that their mood symptoms remit. And of course, as you speak, the question comes up as to the influence or impact of other variables on what may appear as a depression, other illnesses, other medications, real family issues at home, financial concerns and things like that. Those are real issues as well. Sure. Very interesting and very complex. And you know what? It may actually be one of the reasons why a person doesn't actually respond to medications, which goes in a big circle back to what we said at the very beginning, is that we've got to make sure that the diagnosis is correct. Absolutely. And sometimes that can take a lot of time. Sure, sure. That does bring up another issue that I think is interesting in the older population, and that is is that there are many medications that they have to take or required to take that also contribute to depression. So I'm thinking of beta blockers as well as we'll often find patients on Reglan still, lemeprazole, 
which can certainly cause severe depressions. It's a very large and complex, but many times treatable condition. But we really need to begin with the concepts of that it takes time and there is the phase of response, there is the phase of remission. Dr. James Jacobson is a psychiatrist in Melbourne, Florida, who has been kind enough to explain some of these very basic concepts in the treatment planning and protocols of approaching a depression. Dr. Jacobson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.